In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm starting out by talking about why airplane cabins are so dry and what you can do about it. Then, I'm going to take a look at the lasting impacts of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Welcome to episode 44 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. Let's get started. Why are aircraft cabins so dry and what can I do about it? If you've ever felt like the cabin of your airplane was super dry and have gotten off your flight feeling dehydrated, you're not alone and you're not wrong. Humidity levels on airplanes tend to be lower than 20%, while research has shown that humans tend to be most comfortable with a relative humidity level of somewhere between 30 and 60%. In order to understand why aircraft cabins are so dry, we first have to look at where the air in your cabin comes from. Fresh air on passenger airliners comes from the engines. Air enters the engines and some of it is used in the combustion process that powers the aircraft. As air passes through the engines, part of it gets diverted into the cabin air system, which filters it before pumping it into the cabin. There are then outflow valves that let air out, which is also how pressurization is maintained on board. These systems replace the air in the cabin every few minutes. The thing is though, the outside air at an aircraft's cruising altitude has very little to no moisture in it. When on the ground, even in the driest environments, there's water vapor in the air, but that's not really the case when you're high up in the sky. The reason for this is that the atmospheric pressure gets lower as you climb higher, and with lower pressure, the air can hold less moisture. That means that the air being brought into the cabin is extremely dry. Now, you may be thinking at this point, well what about all the people exhaling moist air into the cabin? And that's a good point. Keep in mind that the air is constantly flowing out of the cabin too though, since the cabin air is being replaced every few minutes. The humidity level is also kept low intentionally to prevent moisture-related issues such as the corrosion of metal parts, electrical problems, and mold growth. The good news is that things are improving. Newer aircraft like the Boeing 787 and the Airbus A350 have fuselages made from composite materials which are less susceptible to corrosion and can therefore handle more moisture in the cabin. Both of these aircraft also have systems that help retain more moisture in the cabin, leading to higher humidity levels. These systems can even optimize the humidity level based on the number of passengers on board, leading to a more comfortable experience. Let's talk now about what you can do on a flight to minimize the impacts of the low humidity. The most obvious one is to make sure that you're drinking enough water. People tend to not drink enough water on planes, either because they don't have any conveniently accessible or to avoid using the lavatory. But drinking water is vital to keeping yourself hydrated. The World Health Organization also recommends limiting your intake of caffeine and alcohol as they tend to cause you to urinate more, which can contribute to dehydration. Using lip balm and moisturizer can also prevent your lips and skin from getting dry, and on longer flights, you can even consider using a moisturizing face mask. If your nose gets dry during flights, you can use a saline nasal spray to help with that. And finally, if you normally wear contact lenses, it's a good idea to consider wearing glasses instead as contacts can make your eyes feel drier. Did you know that there are some subtle symbolic tributes present at airports resulting from 9-11? 
Perhaps the most prominent is in the name of Newark Liberty International Airport. Prior to the September 11th attacks in 2001, the airport was simply named Newark International Airport, but the word Liberty was added in 2002 to pay tribute to the victims of the 9-11 attacks and to the nearby Statue of Liberty. To this day, there are also American flags that fly above the jet bridges at three of the gates from which the hijacked flights departed. Gate 32 and Gate C-19 at Boston Logan International Airport, where American Flight 11 and United Flight 175 departed from respectively, and at Gate A-7 at Newark Liberty International Airport, the departure gate for United Flight 93. September 11, 2001. It is a date that has gone down in the books of history as an awful, tragic day. The terrorist attacks of that day left nearly 3,000 people dead and thousands more injured. The world watched in shock as the events unfolded, shaking America to its core. Beyond the devastation of the attacks, 9-11 led to a global economic shock, long-term health impacts on survivors and first responders, and the ongoing global war on terror. Unsurprisingly, there was also a sharp decline in air travel and some major changes in the world of aviation. While the events of that tragic day led to significant impacts in many areas, I'm going to look at the lasting impacts of the 9-11 attacks on air travel today in the main segment of today's episode. This episode isn't meant to be an extensive retelling of the 9-11 story, but I think a brief recap of the day's events is important for context. The events of that day started when two of the hijackers checked into a flight at Portland International Jetport in Maine for an early morning flight to Boston Logan International Airport, where they would connect on American Airlines Flight 11 bound for Los Angeles. A wide-body Boeing 767-200ER aircraft operating American Flight 11 later took off at 7.59 a.m. Not long afterwards, at 8.14 a.m., another Boeing 767, United Airlines Flight 175, also took off from Boston Logan Airport for a transcontinental flight to Los Angeles. Six minutes later, American Flight 77, a narrow-body Boeing 757-200, departed Washington Dulles International Airport, also headed for Los Angeles. And finally, another Boeing 757 operating United Airlines Flight 93 left Newark International Airport at 8.42 a.m. bound for San Francisco. The flights had a combined total of over 260 people on board, and these were the four aircraft that were hijacked and used to commit the deadliest terrorist act in history. Within the first hour of each flight, Groups of hijackers stormed the flight decks of each aircraft and took control of the planes. On some of the flights, they used bomb threats, mace spray, and even stabbed passengers. At 8.46am, only 47 minutes after it had left Boston, American Flight 11 was flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, a 110-story office building that stood over 1,300 feet tall in New York. 17 minutes later, at 9.03am, United Flight 175 was deliberately flown into the adjacent twin building, the World Trade Center's South Tower. Around half an hour later, American Flight 77 flew into the Pentagon in Arlington County, Virginia at 9.37am. United Flight 93 then crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 10.03am. It is believed that the intended target for that flight was the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., 
but a passenger uprising led to the hijackers flying the plane into the ground. Hundreds of people were killed instantly upon the impact of the flights, including those on the hijacked planes, and many in the World Trade Center Twin Towers and in the Pentagon. However, that wasn't the end of it. At 9.58am, just under an hour after it was struck, the south tower of the World Trade Center collapsed due to a structural failure caused by the ongoing fires in the building. Although it was struck first, the north tower didn't collapse until half an hour later for the same reason. A third building, 7 World Trade Center, also collapsed hours later at 5.21pm, although there are no known casualties from that collapse as the area and the building had been evacuated. The events of that day left nearly 3,000 people dead. Pentagon and United 93's crash, the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, took the unprecedented step of grounding all civilian aircraft in the continental United States. All aircraft in flight over the U.S. were instructed to land immediately, and flights bound for the U.S. were diverted, many ending up in Canada and Mexico. For days, tens of thousands of passengers in the United States and around the world were left stranded. The U.S. government kept planes grounded for three days, but the impacts on the air travel industry lasted for much longer. Demand for travel plummeted by an estimated 30% in the U.S. after the attacks as people became more fearful and reluctant to fly. The month before the attacks, August of 2021, saw a record high number of air travel passengers in the United States. Passenger volumes didn't reach as high again until July of 2005. After the attacks, the share prices of airlines and aircraft manufacturers tanked, and over 62,000 people were laid off from the airlines. The 9-11 attacks ended up causing the largest decline in air traffic ever until the COVID-19 pandemic. Airport security before 9-11 was very different from what we are used to now. Security screening in the United States and in many other parts of the world was the responsibility of airlines and airports. Security is often outsourced to private contractors, and the standards and requirements were much looser than they are today. Passengers would pass through metal detectors, and their bags were x-rayed, but there was little attention paid to what was inside checked bags. You didn't need to remove anything from your bags at the screening checkpoints. Belts and shoes didn't have to come off. You could have a giant tub of toothpaste and a pocket knife without any issues. You also didn't need a ticket to go through airport security. Family and friends were allowed past the security checkpoints and could go with departing travelers to the gate or meet arriving passengers there. In some countries like Sweden and Finland, there was no security at all for domestic flights with the exception of some random screening. On the day of the attacks, 10 of the 19 hijackers were selected by something called the Computer Aided Passenger Pre-Screening System, or CAPS. At the time, CAPS was administered by the FBI and the Federal Aviation Administration, and it selected passengers for additional screening of their checked baggage for explosives. However, selected passengers didn't undergo any extra screening at their passenger checkpoints. The check-in cutoffs that we have today weren't a thing back then either. It was perfectly normal to arrive half an hour or less before a flight and breeze through security. Long lines at airport security were rare, and the entire experience was much less stressful than it is today. While in flight, children and other passengers were often welcome to visit. This all changed after the events of September 11, 2001. 
Congress and the White House authorized the creation of the Transportation Security Agency, or TSA, and the agency was officially formed in November of 2001. It would be the federal agency that was responsible for the security of passenger aviation in the United States, taking over the role from the private contractors. Similar government actions took place around the world. In Canada, for example, the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, or CATSA, was formed in 2002 with the responsibility of conducting passenger and baggage screening at a Canadian airports. Back in the US, the TSA began a rapid effort to hire security screeners. The agency increased the number of security screeners in the US from around 16,000 to around 56,000 after 9-11. The training for these employees was increased from 12 hours to over 100 hours. The private screeners were retained at first, but starting at Baltimore-Washington International Airport on April 30th of 2002, TSA employees began to take over the passenger screening functions at American airports. The piece of legislation that set all this in motion was the Aviation and Transportation Security Act, which was quickly passed through Congress and was signed into law by President George W. Bush on November 19th, 2001. Not only did the act create the TSA, but it also mandated that all checked baggage be screened, expanded the Federal Air Marshal Service, and required cockpit doors to be reinforced. Like I mentioned earlier, checked baggage got minimal scrutiny before 9-11. In the United States, only around 5% of checked luggage was screened. Starting on January 16, 2002 though, all airlines were required to either adopt positive bag matching, which meant that each piece of checked baggage had to be matched to a passenger on board a flight, or screen checked baggage for explosives. There were multiple options for explosive screening that were used. Explosive detection systems and explosive trace detection machines are technologies that helped identify the presence of explosives. Explosive detection systems were large and could screen bags rapidly, but generated a lot of false positives. Explosive trace detection was more labor-intensive though, as it required bags to be individually swapped by a screener. Alternative screening methods included bomb-sniffing dogs and manual bag searches. By the end of 2002, most checked bags in the US were being screened for explosives, meeting a deadline set by the Aviation and Transportation Security Act. Checked baggage continues to be screened for explosives today. The TSA has better trace detection technology now that allows bags to be screened instantly as opposed to manual swabs taken by humans. Explosive detection systems are also still in use that use imaging technology to capture bags for screening. They work kind of like an MRI machine and can quickly determine if a bag contains a potential threat. The Aviation and Transportation Security Act also led to the expansion of the Federal Air Marshal Service. Air Marshals, also known as Sky Marshals, are undercover law enforcement officers that fly on commercial flights in an effort to thwart hijackings. In the United States, they also conduct other law enforcement duties. At the time of the September 11th attacks, there were only 33 active federal Air Marshals. Immediately after the attacks, the service was tasked with hiring and training 600 Air Marshals in one month. Today, there are an estimated few thousand federal Air Marshals in the United States. Numerous other countries including Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom have also adopted or expanded their air marshal programs in the wake of 9-11. The September 11th attacks relied largely on the hijackers breaching the flight deck doors. The Aviation and Transportation Security Act therefore mandated that cockpit doors be reinforced to protect from intrusion, including from small arms fire. All carriers met this requirement by April 2003. 
The act also prohibited access to the flight deck during the flight, ending the era of in-flight cockpit visits. These provisions remain largely in place today both in the United States and around the world. In 2002, the U.S. passed the Arming Pilots Against Terrorism Act as part of the Homeland Security Act of 2002. This led to the TSA creating the Federal Flight Officer Program. I talked a bit about this in episode 40, but it essentially involves pilots on commercial flights who are trained to carry and use firearms on board in order to defend their aircraft against terrorism and other violent criminal activity. While on duty inside their airplane, they are considered to be federal law enforcement. They undergo a selection and background check process and have to go through training at a federal facility. Like I mentioned in episode 40 though, it's not like you'll see a pilot carrying a gun since they're required to keep their firearms securely locked up. While those are some of the immediate impacts in the aftermath of the attacks that still remain in place today, the coming years brought more changes that are still around. Remember the CAP system that selected a bunch of the hijackers for additional checked baggage screening? Well, a proposal to replace it with a new system called CAPS-2 was introduced after 9-11, but was later cancelled. Instead, the system that's in place today is called Secure Flight. Secure Flight is a pre-screening program run by the TSA. According to the agency, it is a quote, risk-based passenger pre-screening program that enhances security by identifying low- and high-risk passengers before they arrive at the airport by matching their names against trusted traveler lists and watch lists. End quote. Around a year after the attacks, Congress set up the 9-11 Commission to investigate the attacks, and it led to a number of recommendations, including passenger pre-screening, which led to the implementation of Secure Flight. The Act was written to address a recommendation that federal standards be created for identification. Before the Act, each state decided on things like what information to include and what security features were present. The Act sets out minimum standards for state-issued identification cards like driver's licenses, including things like record checks to verify an individual's identity, and physical security features in the card itself. I talked about the impact of the Real ID Act on air travel a bit in episode 42, so I won't go over it extensively again, but basically, starting on May 7, 2025, all passengers boarding flights in the United States will need either Real ID-compliant identification or identification from a list of alternative options, which includes things like passports and global entry cards. Since 9-11, there have been a bunch of other changes to airport security and air travel that weren't a direct result of the attacks, but were put into place in the post-9-11 context. And by that, I mean a world in which we've been more vigilant and focused on aviation security. For example, the whole liquids removal thing as security doesn't stem from 9-11. In 2006, law enforcement in the United Kingdom discovered a terrorist plot to detonate liquid explosives on flights bound to North America. The plot involved disguising liquid explosives as soft drinks and governments around the world reacted quickly to restrict liquids on planes. In the United Kingdom, the government basically banned all carry-on luggage except for a purse or wallet. The measures were so strict that pens were banned because the ink that they contained was a liquid. There was an exception if you wanted to bring baby food on board for your baby, but you had to taste it in front of airport security. In the United States, all liquids and gels except baby formula and prescription medication was banned. Other countries enacted similar measures. These changes created a whole host of additional problems. Baggage systems couldn't cope with the massive increase in checked luggage and tons of flights were cancelled. 
In the following weeks and months, the rules were relaxed, but there were still restrictions on liquids and carry-on luggage in the form of the liquids rules that we know today. Over a decade and a half later, these restrictions are still in place, although there have been some developments lately around relaxing these rules. There is also a requirement that only exists in the United States and a few other countries for passengers to remove their shoes when going through airport security. This stems from a separate plot in late 2001, during which a passenger attempted to detonate explosives hidden in his shoes on an American Airlines flight from Paris to Miami. The attack was thwarted by fellow passengers and the aircraft landed safely, but the TSA started mandating that shoes be removed when going through security in 2006, and passengers across the states are still dutifully removing their footwear to this day. Other developments include the full body scanners, the TSA PreCheck Trusted Traveler program, and more recently, the testing of CT scanners by the TSA. As we fly today, we live in a world where air travel, and aviation security in particular, are shaped by the lasting impacts of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Long gone are the days where friends and family could accompany or greet travelers at the gate, or young passengers could visit the cockpit during their flight. We now have to arrive well in advance of our flights, remove our liquids at airport security, and are accompanied on our flights by armed pilots and air marshals. There's absolutely no doubt that 9-11 has reshaped the air travel experience and will continue to do so for years to come. Now, to wrap up today's main segment, I wanted to share some additional resources related to what we talked about. I first had this idea when I realized that I couldn't tell the full 9-11 story and wanted to share a good resource that does this. I've seen tons of great material out there about 9-11 and I find the topic quite interesting. Since this is a podcast though, I want to mention a limited podcast series released throughout 2021 and 2022 called Zero Hour, A History of 9-11. It's an exceptionally well-researched podcast with 10 episodes by journalist David DeSola. He chronicles the history of the lead-up and aftermath of 9-11, as well as the acts themselves. It also includes clips from interviews that he conducted with 25 people, including academics, law enforcement, intelligence, and media. It's a fantastic series and it's available across major podcast platforms. I also want to give a mention to the National September 11th Memorial and Museum, also known as the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, located in New York City at the site of the World Trade Center where the Twin Towers were destroyed. The memorial is centered around two large reflecting pools where the towers once stood and has the names of the victims engraved around the edges. The museum is amazing to visit and has tons of interesting things to see. I've been to both myself and would definitely recommend it as part of a trip to New York City. Next, this is a bit different but it's a brighter note. There's a fantastic musical called Come From Away that tells the story of the small town of Gander, Newfoundland in Canada. When international flights were diverted away from the United States on September 11, 2001, many of them ended up at airports across Canada. Gander is a small town on the eastern tip of Canada and had a population of around 10,000 people at the time. 38 planes with approximately 7,000 passengers on board bound for the United States ended up at Gander International Airport. The town and its surrounding communities rallied together to welcome, feed, and house their newfound guests for around a week following the attacks. I've seen the musical myself and it tells a truly heartwarming story about human kindness. 
as of the time of publication of this episode, it's no longer playing on Broadway in New York or at the West End in London, but it's on tour in North America, and a tour is planned for the United Kingdom and Ireland in 2024. And one final thing to mention. I briefly mentioned TSA PreCheck earlier in this episode as a trusted traveler program. It's a great thing to have as it allows you to get expedited security screening at US airports, including getting access to a special line and not having to remove your laptop, shoes, and liquids. I talked all about it in episode 41, so check that out to learn more about the program and how you can get the benefits. I'll include a link to that in the episode description, as well as links to the Zero Hour, A History of 9-11 podcast, the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, and the Come From Away musical. Please take a minute and follow us on social media where you'll find things like podcast updates, additional content, visuals of things we talk about, and sneak peeks. In the next two weeks, for example, I'll be sharing some content about 9-11, including from my visits to the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Flying Smart is on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Flying Smarter, and on Twitter at Flying underscore Smarter. That brings us to the end of episode 44 of Flying Smarter. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.